I'm going to be reading um, two verses of scripture. I think we should be familiar with both of them. The first one is taken from the first book of John, chapter 3. This has always been a scripture that has intrigued me um, because it's, it's one of those multi-layered scriptures that uh, uh, you can keep peeling back like an onion. Um, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and then we will read uh, Genesis chapter 41. We'll just take one verse, verse um, 14. So if, if you will turn to Genesis chapter 41, um, verse 13 first, and then just put a marker there. And then turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. Genesis is it's a relatively easy book to find. It should be at the beginning of your Bible. If you don't know where it is, you need Jesus. Okay, are we, have we found Genesis and have we moved to John? Okay. John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And I read, it said, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Behold, examine, closely, observe, what manner, the characteristic, the kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us. That is, we didn't ask for it. We didn't buy it. It was his bestowal that we should be called the sons of God. Then rather strangely, it says, therefore, because of this reason, the world knoweth us not. Because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It's one of those sort of convoluted scriptures that you kind of have to read twice so you understand what he's talking about. First of all, he lays up the idea that we have been bestowed with the gracious benefit of being called the sons of God. And because of this benefit that we have been graciously bestowed with, the world does not know us. Because the world did not know him, the bestower of the benefit. Begins to give us some insight as to what he means by the sons of God. And he says, beloved, now are we the sons of God. Because we have been bestowed, that's who we are. But it does not yet appear what we shall be. So even though we are, we are as yet not. 
So that begins to suggest that not only does the world not know who we are, which is a logical extension of the fact that we are the sons of God, it begins to uh, lay the premise to suggest that perhaps we also do not know who we are. And he says, but we know, in spite of our identity crisis, that when he shall appear, which is a certainty, we shall be like him. Now, which him is that? For we shall see him as he is. Now, there's something that um, the psychologists um, um, talk about in relationships where they discuss the phenomenon called mirroring. And oftentimes when um, they're talking about being able to relate with people or relating with people or people who have a strong connection, um, they talk about how they mirror one another. So for instance, if you walk into a space and you meet somebody and uh, uh, they are smiling, the tendency is that you will smile also. And sometimes if you want to invoke a smile from a person, you smile at them and hopefully you get a smile back, assuming that they got out on the right side of the bed and many other uh, atmospheric and environmental conditions which may or may not be in your favor. But the idea is that what you do, the other person's mirrors. Now, if you've noticed people who have been married for a long time, after some time, they, they say they begin to look like one another. Now, it is not that their physical structure changes. It is that they begin to mirror one another's expressions. Sometimes when a child is uh, 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 interacting, you begin to see elements of the child's parents in the child. As someone once said, that a child or offspring is the sum total of the combination of the progenitors. So there is nothing in a child that is not already in one or both of the parents. And so this concept of mirroring is suggested here that whatever version of him that you see, that is the version that you will mirror. And so we know that when we see him, we shall become like the him that we see. Now, it's important for me to say that because um, as we progress, you will discover that uh, uh, God is a multifaceted God. He has many faces. He has many sides to him. He's like a diamond that has been cut with so many different facets. And when light shines through him, you have a broad spectrum. And so no one person can tell you that they have a handle on who God is, which is why there is so much beauty when we come together in an open atmosphere, under an open heaven, because we begin to see glimpses of the multifaceted nature of God in the diversity of who we are in Him. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm saying that because as I speak or go through this message, there are elements of 
our environment and our faith as we know it that I believe are under imminent transformation. Many aspects are in transition, including what we recognize as the expression of our Christian faith. I believe that God is beginning to move in a specific way where certain uh, individuals who are not considered as your poster boy Christian or who do not look like your stereotypical born-again Christian are going to be used much to the bewilderment of the more traditional Christian folk. And so do not be surprised when you begin to see powerful ministries come up from people that do not look like they have ministry inside them in places that do not conventionally look like they hold ministry and in a language, in a way, in a means of uh, uh, communication that does not typically echo what we understand Christianity to be because God is not static. And you have not seen all that there is to see of him yet. So look at your neighbor, say you ain't seen nothing yet. Okay, so um, that was supposed to be the introduction of that scripture. So let's move to the second scripture. Um, Genesis chapter 41 and verse 14. If we can all read that together, it's um, the, uh, sort of like the, uh, um, the, an epic moment in an epic tale that we all kind of know. If this was a... Uh, Steven Spielberg movie or a, a movie with, you know, uh, 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 one of those great epic Hollywood multi, uh, multi-talented movies where you have um, a cast of everybody who's anybody and that's the time when you'll have like a Hans Zimmer score and if you just play that Hans Zimmer score in your mind, um, then verse 14, let's read together in unison from the King James Version. One, two, three. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon. And he shaved himself and changed his raiment and came in unto Pharaoh. Now, the progression of things is quite interesting because um, the preamble to this is Joseph... Um, was a favored son of his father, Jacob. He had uh, 11 brothers who did not like him, and he was partly to blame for that because he was quite an entitled child. Uh, this is the sort of annoying person. You know how it is when, when back in the day when you were in school, there was always one annoying guy. I think every year had someone that was specially selected and said, no, you will be the annoying individual for this set. And that person always used to sit at the front of the class and he's the person who's always asking one last question when it's time to go. And so I read in, so excuse me, sir. And you're like, dude, we're done. What do you... Joseph was that kind of person. He's blue-eyed father's boy. And he had a coat that nobody else had. He did not have the wisdom to uh, only wear his coat occasionally. He would prance around with his coat, my beloved coat, and tell them how he was going to be greater than all of them. This is not the way to win friends and influence people. 
Well, he certainly influenced them. So he was um, ambushed by his brothers and thrown in a pit and sold to uh, the Midianites who took him to Egypt where he became the uh, favored servant of, Pot of um, Potiphar. And um, things seemed to be going well. He kind of reached a cruising altitude that most of us would say he has done well considering where he came from. He became the head of Potiphar's household. He became the person that Pot he was Potiphar's go-to person. He knew everything that Potiphar had, things that Potiphar did not know. And then Potiphar's wife set eyes on him and, you know, um, he was framed for a crime he did not commit and thrown into prison. Okay? Immediately he rose up the ranks of the prison and became the blue-eyed boy. You would say, well, considering his background and considering his record, he is doing quite well. So he's now at cruising altitude. It's not the same altitude it was before, but it's lower. And this is the thing about life. Oftentimes you think you've attained cruising altitude. But the one thing that is always going to be constant is change. Now most of us um, either want change because we feel we want our life to be better or we do not want change because we feel that our life is good. Oftentimes, you know, you hear people say things like, power must change hands and people shout amen. But I promise you there's some people in your midst who are not shouting uh, amen because they have power. Why would it change hands? It's in my hands. It's in good hands. Let's keep it there. I am the Lord God who changeth not. Let's keep power in this hand. And so this is the situation that um, uh, uh, Joseph was in. And he, in prison, met the um, butler and the baker. And um, he interpreted their dreams. The butler had a good outcome. The baker, not so much. And the butler promptly, in spite of Joseph's pleas, forgot him for two years. What kind of ingratitude is that? At some point, it should have occurred to you in the midst of your celebrations as to how you came out that somebody said something. Two years. Two years is a long time to be waiting for a phone call that does not come. And the Bible says that Pharaoh had a dream that the fat cows, the skinny cows, the fat corn, the skinny corn, spooky dream, and then... Um, they couldn't um, interpret the dream for him. At least it was not as bad as a certain king who could not even remember the dream. At least he remembered the dream, but they couldn't interpret it. And so the butler then remembered Joseph. And the Bible says he spoke to Pharaoh about Joseph. And the Bible says in verse 14 that Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon. And... He shaved himself and changed his raiment and came in unto Pharaoh. Now, I'm going to come back to this in a bit, but let me just get into the preamble of what it is I wanted to say today. Today, I'm going to be um, speaking on the subject, this is an emergency, which at first glance, does not seem to tally one bit with the scriptures that I have quoted, but I pray that at some point you will see the connection. Speaking of which, let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Your word brings life. It is truth to us. I ask as we contemplate your word this morning that you grant us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we come to know you more. Cause the eyes of our understanding to be illuminated to the point that we can see you better, but not just see you, know that you are the hope of our calling. Understand what the riches of your inheritance in us, the investment you have made in us, and the incomparable power that is available for us because we have chosen to believe. I ask that as I speak, you cause me and all fleshly versions of myself to diminish so that you can increase so that they don't see me, but they see you, to which end I hide myself behind Calvary's cross and ask that you speak through me. Let this tongue be orchestrated by you. Let my words be inspired by you. And let every single person hear the word that you are speaking to them. Without you, I can do nothing. And so I surrender myself completely to you and say, have your way in this service to the glory of your name alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So having, as I shed the last vestiges of my vanity, having shown myself as a smart dresser, I shall now remove my jacket and proceed with the message. So if the photographs of this sermon are pretty, at least they will show part of me. I was wearing suit. Okay. Emergence comes from the Latin word emergere, and it means to rise out or up from something. Um, emerger. The fact that it means to rise up or out of something suggests that there is a revealing of something that has been concealed. Um, because it comes from E, which means out of, and merger, which means to dip or to submerge. And the fact that it's that combination of words, it does not mean um, for something to be formed and then come out, but it means for something to be dipped and then revealed, predisposes that whatever is dipped was in existence before it was hidden. Now, it's important to understand that because most times when we think of emergence, we think of it from, the, from a subjective standpoint whereby something um, only becomes real once we are aware of it. But there are many things that are real of which you are not aware. For instance, Zhong Huang. How many of us know him? Nobody knows him because I just made up the name. But statistically speaking, it is likely there is somebody called John Huang somewhere on the planet. But the fact that you and I have never met him does not mean he does not exist. And so one of the things that we have to be aware of as we walk through life is the reality that there are many things that are submerged 
from our view that have not yet become revealed or have not yet emerged. We've seen the great illustration where somebody takes a cloth and covers something while they're preaching and says that, you know, um, revelation is the unveiling of something. How many of you have seen that illustration before? You've not seen it before? You have? Yeah, most of us have seen it. Somebody puts a handkerchief on something and says, this microphone has been veiled. And then revelation is simply the unveiling of what was already there. Submer- um, emerging is something, emergence is something like that. The idea is it is that something exists before concealment. Now, life teaches us that birth and death are two sides of the same coin. Um, there is an Arabian proverb that says that when a man is born, the man cries while the world rejoices. And when a man dies, the man, the world cries while the man rejoices. Now, life and death are the transition or, the, or death is the transition of one being from one state into another. And birth is the transition which often happens simultaneously of that same being from the state to another. So when a child is born, the child dies to the womb and is born into life. The child is snatched out from its existence in the womb and is revealed into life. And so the child emerges at that moment when the um, doctor or the midwife is telling the woman in uh, uh, labor to push. I can see the head. The head is coming out. The head is crowning. He's coming. He's coming. What? That's another way of saying he's emerging. He's emerging. And the woman is going, ee. And the guy is saying, ah. And they are saying, ooh. And then the child comes out, why was I born in Nigeria? <clears throat> okay, so, um, so this, is, this is something that plays out, and the child becomes uh, dead to the womb, but alive unto life. And such it is in life, whenever you want to move forward, whether it's just a simple walk down the yard or climbing up a flight of steps, for you to make progress on to the next level, you must leave one level behind. You cannot move if you are not willing to leave things behind. And, and such as it is, it is not always going to be to the delight of those whom you are leaving behind that you are leaving. You see, oftentimes we do not move because we are trying to get the permission and the cooperation of the people we are leaving behind. Why on earth would somebody cooperate with you when you are about to become better than they see themselves? It is not human nature. And so oftentimes, we, are, we, we, we die to certain experiences and certain levels to the chagrin of those at that level so that we can be born into another level to the delight of those in the new level. This is the circle of life. When I was thinking about this um, message and what I was going to say as I nervously look at the rapidly counting down clock, I, I, I was a bit torn because 
it's difficult to progress with a thought like this without laying the context that many of us are a part of because it constitutes a great uh, 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 percentage of the struggle that we engage in when we have to deal realistically and practically with the subject of emergence. And that is a plague that I believe has beset this generation um, or our time, let me put it like that. Sometime in the late 90s, it would appear that there was a revelation as to how children should be raised. I believe that it was on the back of parents who felt that they suffered unnecessary hardship in their own upbringing. So they decided to raise generations of children who were told from the time that they were born that they were special, different, unique. And we, we have, as a result, come into an age where uh, there are self-help books and motivational speakers and educational system and political correctness on steroids that have cultivated a generation of entitled people. You have malignant parenting where children have become trophy dolls for parents who are trying to relive their vicariously their own deprived childhoods and we have ostentatious first year birthday parties where uh, millions are spent for a child who is asleep half the time while mummies and daddies dance and jubilate because uh, 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 um, and they always have these nice, exotic, western-sounding names, like Na Na Natalia is one. And they show Natalia's picture. And the parents, Natalia is one. We have elaborate graduation ceremonies from kindergarten involving gowns and caps, cakes and more money spent and... We have expensive designer clothes and photo shoots and designer outfits and uh, uh, gadgets and gizmos. And the children are given certificates of participation on prize giving day. Everybody gets a prize like Oprah, you get one, you get one, and you get one. Everybody gets one. You know? and, 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 and we have these children growing up. And, and then they become members of a church which, to all intents and purposes, has become society's paragon of entitlement. I find that Christians today are amongst the most, I'm trying to find a kind word, amongst the most uh, uh, deluded, entitled 
human beings on the planet. And, 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 and we, we, we are happy to sit in services where we preach that everyone is great. Which by its very definition means that nobody is great. Because if we're all great, then great is normal. Which means that we're all normal. So just say, we're all normal. We, we, we say, this is your year of greatness. Every year is your year of greatness. We say that somebody is going to get a phone call next week and your life will change. Well, somebody did get a phone call last week and his life did change. But it wasn't the way you thought it would. And so we have these messages and, you know, we have these slogans, my case is different. And what that has done, it, is, has, it, has, it has bred a, a, a generation of believers who feel that God is obliged to fulfill their every whim and desire. And so we, we have messages that, that, that focus on, on cars and houses and clothes and shoes and all the lovely things that we like, but they don't focus on the real thing, which is building a kingdom whose king is God. And this, I find, is a problem because... We know not who we are. And the world is trying to force us on whom we should become. And this messages, these kind of preaching, what it does is it, it, it just breeds a generation of entitled parishioners who themselves are led by a generation of narcissistic, entitled preachers. Where because of my title, which you must get right, including the hyphens, <laughs> I am entitled to come to the beginning of the line. The laws don't apply to me. And, and, and I find this mirrors what happens in the world where everybody who has... Uh, a, a title has an escort and and you know everybody it, it, it's it's you see I, now sometimes you you kind of get into trouble when you talk like this and it is not that any of those things in and of themselves are wrong some of them are but let's just for the sake of political correctness say when they're not all wrong they are wrong <laughs> the the emphasis begins to filter in to the very manifestation of ministry where the individual or the vessel begins to believe that God is beholden to him rather than he being beholden to God. And so we have the syndrome of reluctant messengers. Where if the message does not sound like what I want to say, I begin to question whether or not I should say it. If you've ever had a word for someone, there is that moment of acute self-conscious embarrassment because you don't know exactly how the person is going to receive it. But you see, that 
self-conscious embarrassment is what is wrong with a lot of ministry because it begins to presume the message is about me. It's not about you. It's about the message and the person who sent the message and the person who is receiving the message. You are just the delivery boy or girl. This is important to understand because it begins to put us in contention with the God whom we claim to serve. And this is where we have what I call paradoxes of our faith, where we have faith or we use our faith to trust God, to bless us so we no longer have to trust him. Lord, give me enough money so I will be self-sufficient and no longer have to ask you for money. We, we want harvests without reaping. And we want to reap without sowing. And so when a prayer point is preached and you, amen, you will do great works for the Lord, amen. You will become a light to the world. Amen. You will live in houses you did not build. Amen. You will eat where you did not sow. Amen. You will crush your enemies. <laughs> you ever been to prayer meetings like that? You want to get people to say amen? Tell them they're going to live in houses. I don't know what it is about free stuff and black folk. <laughs> if it's free, amen. I want it. And you see, oftentimes we don't, we don't understand what the scripture says. First of all, the Bible makes it very clear. Seed time and harvest are a constant. There can never be a harvest without seed. Secondly, the Bible makes it very clear that just because you are reaping, which in and of itself is labor, it means that somebody else has sown. And I will tell you this. If you never sow anything, you will never reap anything. Because the, 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 the principle of reaping, sowing, and reaping is tied to the fact that you sow. It does not say where you sow is where you shall reap, but you will reap because you have sown. So even if you reap where somebody else has sown, somebody else is reaping where you have sown. But if you never sowed anything, trust me, you will see them, but you will not be part of them. And so this is a paradox. We want provision without vision. We want uh, uh, salvation, and this is the big one, without peril. You know, I was having a conversation with my wife the other day, and, you know, raising children, there's a time when it dawns on you, it's kind of like a revelation that you are not in control. Yeah. As parents, we kind of like to delude ourselves that we are in control. And there's a time that it, it, it dawns on you that you are not in control. And I realize that one of the big mistakes that we make with our children a lot of times is that we expect the expression of their faith to be the same as ours. It cannot be because their life experiences are different. Yeah. 
And then we want our children to be saved, but then we want to protect them from every single thing that could cause them to be in peril. Tell me, if you are never in danger, how will you cry out? And if you don't cry out, how will you be saved? You don't save your children because you think it's so. Your children are saved because they desire it to be so. And when you're asking for your children to have an encounter with God, you best be ready for what life is going to unleash on them. Because you cannot encounter a God that you do not seek. And so we look at the mindset and have to agree that one of the byproducts of an entitlement mindset is the subconscious belief that you can have a harvest without the rigor of sowing and the patience for growth. This is what the entitlement mindset has. It removes the process of sowing and the duration for growth from the equation. And so we want God to do what he must do now because we are entitled to reap where we have not sown. This thinking, I believe, is the root of corruption. It is the iniquitous tendency, which is in the heart of every man, to reach for reward without due labor or investment. Which is why somebody gets to an office and wants to reap the rewards of several lifetimes in several years. And when we look at the system and say they are corrupt, we the church, we are the answer. It is our self-entitled chest beating that suggests that we have the right to make the difference simply because we are us. That is not how change comes. Change comes by recognizing that for every effect or result, there is a process that must be invested in which has requisite labor before the reward comes out. Like the singer who wants to sing in front of Thousands and thousands of people that never wants to spend any time rehearsing. So many Christians have this mindset which tells me that our country will not change as long as we think like this. Because we consistently produce the reward of our labor or lack thereof. Prayer is important. But sowing is more than spiritual. It is also physical, emotional. And this is where I come to the crux of what my thought was today. One of the most underrated and I dare say misunderstood concepts in the church today is the concept of suffering. Because whenever we talk about suffering, we speak about it from the standpoint of something that must be avoided 
And this buys into the self-entitled mindset that we have cultivated where we believe that we are exempt from suffering. My status with God should exempt me from suffering. And we use words like favor, grace, mercy as tickets that we wish to waive at the immigration's officer so that we can have a rite of passage into destiny without standing on the queue of suffering. Life does not happen like this. And this is the reason why a lot of times when Christians are afflicted, they are bewildered and baffled because their self-entitled mind tells them, I should not be suffering. This is not my portion. Whose portion is it? Who does it belong to? Who does the suffering belong to? Tell me. If not you, then who? Abraham's blessings are mine. Do you have any idea what Abraham went through? The God of Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you know what those guys went through? When the Bible talks about the hall of fame in Hebrews, we talk about the men that, you know, the, the miracles and the great men. You somehow, you read it and you don't see the guys that were sawed in half. The guys that were given to lions. Who are they? They are part of them. How do you know you? That is not you. Who do you know who you are? The Bible says it does not yet appear. <laughs> and so we walk through life trying to avoid suffering. God, don't let me suffer. Ah, don't let me suffer. It's like, it's like you're going to the doctor and you know they're going to give you an injection. And they haven't even come near you. But you're already, you know, clenched, <laughs> wincing. And, and, and that's how we go through life. Ah, today is Monday. Hey, God, hey, don't let me. Ah, God, hey, don't let me. So Listen, if you would take this thought, if you would take this thought, it would change your life. Embrace suffering. Suffering is not what you think it means. Suffering comes from the Latin word sub-fair. Sub means beneath. Fair means to bear. It means to have load-bearing capacity. Now, it reminds me of another word that we often ascribe to pleasantness. And that is the word understanding. Understanding means to stand beneath. Now, if understanding means to stand beneath and suffering means to be under, to bear, then I put it to you that you cannot gain understanding without suffering. Suffering is God's way of teaching understanding. The Bible says that though Jesus 
was the son of God, Hebrews 5 chapter 8, he learned obedience by what? The things he suffered. Now, let me put it to you in the English that I'm using. Jesus learned obedience by being able to stand under things and bear the load. See, every time you go through something that afflicts you, it reveals a part of you that of your own accord, you would not have revealed yourself. How many of us have ever tried to um, gain, lose weight or, or, you know, and have tried it by ourselves? That I will wake up when I want to wake up and I will carry the weight until I'm tired. I will run as far as I can go and then I will call it a day. Amen. How many of us have ever tried to do it with a trainer? And quickly regretted our thoughtlessness in such unprovoked self-affliction that you are paying for. Where you, you, God and the Holy Ghost have agreed, it is enough. And it says, good, two more. Two more, why? How? This is what happens when you take the steering wheel out of your hand you are forced to reveal that part of you that wants to stay hidden. It does not yet appear who we are. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. So what does the appearance of Jesus mean? I will tell you what it means. To understand salvation, you must understand the suffering of a God choosing to be a mortal man. That is not a decision you and I can comprehend because we have not lived on the front porch of eternity and viewed all of time in a glance. We have not measured the water in the palm of our hand. Neither have we created a footstool that is a planet. We have not created light out of nothing. And so when a God who can do all of this chooses to become a mortal man, you have no understanding of what degree of suffering that is. Now the Bible says that Jesus is the word and in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Now that word there is the word logos which means idea or concept. So the concept of God was with God and that concept of God which was in fact God became flesh, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was then implanted into the womb of Mary. Which means that for Jesus to be able to redeem you and I, he must of necessity be God. Because only God can redeem. But for him to be able to connect with you and I, he must of necessity be man. Because only man can connect. And so God 
takes Jesus or himself, implants him into Mary, and so Mary is now bearing a God who is man. Now we know he is God because the only way he could have gone into Mary without being part of the process of Mary getting pregnant was if he existed before he was planted. And so God in existence is submerged into Mary so that in due time he can be born or emerge as man. But because he is God and man, he is a God-man. Now, the reverse, if Mary, Jesus had been born of Joseph, he would have been man. He would not have been able to redeem man. Likewise, if God had born himself of another God, he would have been God-God. He would have been able to redeem man, just that he would not be able to reach man. And so the compromise was God becoming man so that the God-man could redeem man, which means that the origin of Jesus and his birth are not the same. He predates his birth. His birthday and his origin are two separate times. You must understand this because the Bible then goes on to say this suffering he did not see it as bribery he didn't see it as something highfalutin to consider himself equal with God because he recognized who he was and why he was and so we now have God able to redeem man having a birth date different from his origin and then he goes on to say that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Which means that you and I who know our birthdays, when we come into Christ, who has a birthday different from his origin, our origin becomes the same as his. Which is why the Bible says that by this, what manner of love is this that God has bestowed upon us that we have become the sons of God. The son there means technon, which means offspring, which means the one who is the same flesh and substance as the progenitor. And if God has an origin that is different from his birthday, the moment we become sons of God, we also have an origin that is separate from our birthday. Hence, the crisis of identity where we are, but we know not who we are because we have not yet seen all that we are. So what is it that reveals who you and I truly are? It is the onset or the manifestation of Christ. Now why does Christ show up? He shows up because you and I call unto him in the time of tribulation. If there is no trouble, there'll be no calling. And when there's a calling, he shows up as the mirror image of who you are meant to be. And so the Bible says that 
Joseph was in trouble. He'd been in trouble because he interpreted a dream and the dream got him somewhere. And that place took him to a pit. And then he got to Potiphar's house. He was lied upon and he was thrown somewhere else. And then he saw another person with a dream which he interpreted and that person forgot him. Joseph is in crisis. And I can imagine Joseph sitting there the first week thinking anytime now he's going to call me. Just like some of us are sitting down waiting for our breakthrough, not understanding why our prayers are not being answered. And he's waiting the first week, the second week. I imagine he had his bags packed. You know when you're expecting to go somewhere imminently and you have your bags packed, but the car doesn't show up. Nobody calls. You're waiting. After some time, he probably told them, started giving out some of his belongings. I don't need this anymore because I'm leaving. I don't need that anymore. I'm leaving. And then suddenly he had to go back and pick up his toothbrush. Uh, I need it actually. Uh, he had to go back and pick You know how it is when you thought that this situation was not going to be there for long and it's been one year and God does not seem to be answering. When you think trouble shows up, it's a problem. And a problem is trouble on a level that you can bear. And you kind of think that, well, I can handle this as long as it doesn't get worse than this. The other day, my wife and I were at a place and we locked our key in the door by mistake inside the house. And we were locked out. We'd been outside for 30 minutes minutes and then it dawned on us it's really cold out here because when trouble knocks on your door it does not at first appear how big the trouble is you see the face of trouble but you don't see the train it's bringing behind and so you kind of think this is going to be but a moment I will last okay and then the trouble begins to move in one hour passed two hours passed have you ever had a car break down on third mainland bridge you have no idea how fast cars are moving until you're on the outside and cars are whizzing by you can't even put your hand out to say please because you think they will whisk you off the bridge and this is joseph one week two weeks one month, two months, and then he celebrated the anniversary of their departure. Do you know what it is? When you can look back and say, this time last year, trouble afflicted me. This is trouble that is graduating. Trouble has gone to school. It's taken its class. It's about to get a degree. The degree that trouble gets is called crisis and you see when trouble becomes crisis it means the bad stuff has hit the fan everything is going a okay i'm not gonna say that and so joseph is sitting in prison waiting he has no idea by the time the second year has come and gone he has concluded to himself, this is my portion. I am not as entitled 
as I thought I was. I am not as blessed as I thought I was. I am not as privileged as I thought I was. You see, Joseph was used to being on top. He was on top in his father's house. He was on top in Potiphar's house. He was on top in the jail cell. But sometimes you realize that your position and your location can be two different things all at the same time. And suddenly he's realizing that in God's hand, I am just an empty vessel that God is using as he pleases. Until you and I understand that we are not running our show, we are running God's show, we are not ready to see the hand of his deliverance. And then the Bible says that Pharaoh had a dream. Joseph did not know. Pharaoh struggled with his dream. Joseph did not know. You can be on one side struggling with your condition and your deliverance is coming to fruition and you have no idea. That's why it is so important that in all things you have a thankful heart. Always give thanks. Always be upright because you know not the day nor the hour when Christ shall come. The Bible says he will show up like a thief in the night. Now we often use that uh, talking about the rapture but the truth is uh, when Christ is going to show up on your doorstep uh, you have no idea. You may not be ready but you better be prepared. And the Bible says that Joseph was brought. Suddenly he heard the sound of hurried footsteps. Now they wouldn't have brought one man to bring Joseph because I want to make sure he comes. And they came and the Bible says they brought him out hastily. He didn't have time to do nothing. You see, most times when we read this, we have this image of Joseph being a spiritual man, calculated, calm. Hmm, I have footsteps. I perceive they have come to carry me. Let me present myself. And then carefully taking his garments and folding them, taking a razor blade and shaving. Yes, Pharaoh has a dream. Yes, I know. Take me to him. I shall interpret it. That most of us have that picture of Joseph because that's how the story plays in our head. Joseph was probably sitting despondently in his cell and they brought him out hastily. He probably had no idea what was going on. All of a sudden, there was a commotion. This commotion is what we call crisis. Crisis is at the cusp of change. It is when there's a watershed moment between what was and what could be. Crisis is what doctors use when they're talking about a patient who is at the point where he could either live or die. Everything depends on what happens next. This was Jake, jo Joseph's crisis moment and the Bible says they brought him out hastily he was not ready but he was prepared you see the Bible says that we are the workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God have 
prepared beforehand for you and me. Which means that we have been cut into a shape that fits into a lock that is being prepared by God. And you see, the lock is ready, but you are not. Because there's some things that needed to be shaved off. I had to have my afro shaved off because it was a bald head shape in the lock I needed to fit in. I had to lose some weight because I was too fat for that lock. And so while God is cutting me, I'm saying, God, why am I entitled me suffering like this? He says it does not yet appear. And so they brought him out, not ready, but cut. Not ready for it, but cut into shape. He wasn't expecting it, but he was cut. He wasn't looking at it, but he was cut. What is it that God has cut you for that you've not been looking at, that you didn't see coming? And the Bible says, because he was prepared, he knew what to do. He didn't understand it, but he knew, I need to change my clothes. Give me a minute. I need a change. I need to look the part. Give me a minute. I need to shave. Whatever it is you're going through, whatever your situation or circumstance is, life is about to take an unexpected turn. You might not be ready because it's not the turn you are looking for, but be prepared. Your suffering will bear fruit for the trouble you're about to get into. Who am I? speaking to at this moment because God is giving a Pharaoh somewhere a bad dream and when that dream comes to fruition your name is going to be on the lips of someone that you forgot knew you and the Bible says he came out it's a bit like when a baby is born the mother can be doing whatever she's doing in the kitchen in the shop or whatever but when that baby baby is ready to come out it does not care what the mother is doing it will break the waters and the mother because she knows her due date is coming she has a bag already packed she might not have been ready but she was prepared look at your neighbor and say the baby is coming out when there's a crisis a decision needs to be made decisions that are made in crisis are where we get the word emergency and so look at your neighbor say neighbor this is an emergency i'm in a crisis and i'm about to Come out. Get on your feet, somebody. Lift up your voices and give God a shout of praise. You may not know the time. You may not know the hour. But I know of a certainty that it does not yet appear who you be. But I know that when he shows up, you will be like him. Because the trouble you are going through is cutting you into shape. I just want us to give thanks to God for a few moments. Just lift up your voice. Bless his name. Thank him for his power. 
for his word, for your sonship. Thank him even for the trouble that you're going through because it has a purpose. It's working something good inside of you. And thank him because you are emerging.